Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, November the 28th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Today we're joined by our own columnist, Fintan O'Toole, to whom most Irish Times readers hardly need an introduction. But just in case you need reminding, Fintan has been devoting the majority of his writings over the past two years to the subject of Brexit. That writing has seen him named Broadsheet Columnist of the Year for the last two years in Ireland, while in 2017 he won the European Press Prize for Best Commentator, as well as the Orwell Prize for Journalism. His new book is titled titled Heroic Failure, Brexit and the Politics of Pain. I'm also joined by Helen Thompson, who is Professor of Political Economy at Cambridge University and a regular contributor to one of my personal favourite podcasts, Talking Politics. Fintan, uh, reading your book over the last few days, I was struck, not for the first time, by an incredibly obvious thought, um, which is that there's something very particular about being an Irish person looking at questions of English identity, particularly at this moment, but... but, but because we are so immersed in the culture and the world which you're writing about here, more than any other independent country. Uh, the media, the newspapers, the pop culture, the politics, the sport, we, we we know them inside out. So we're kind of looking, we're right up, you know, with our noses against the window looking at this thing play out. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it, it, it is a pretty good perspective, I think, uh, to be both very, very close and and in a very intimate relationship. Because remember, it's also family, you know, for most of us. I mean, it's, you know, we all have cousins and aunties and uncles. And, um, uh, and at the same time, to have that bit of distance where, uh, obviously, Ireland's interests in all of this are, are, are you know, for, you know, for very, in very obvious ways, have, have come into fundamental clash with 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 uh, with, with Brexit itself. Um, so, I, I think that mixture of closeness and 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 distance is, is is probably a reasonably good perspective. I think the other thing, of course, though, is that we we talk about nationalism. We we talk about national identity. We we never talk about anything bloody well else. Sometimes, you know. Uh, we're steeped in it. We 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 don't shy away. Maybe we should shy away more, but we don't shy away from the idea that that a sense of belonging, a sense of identity, a, a, a sense collectively of who you are, matters. That it's. I think in a lot of, uh, at least before the Brexit vote, a, a lot of sort of mainstream. English discourse, not of course in, in, in Scotland or Wales or Northern Ireland, but in English discourse, you know, an idea that oh, nationalism is something we can't really talk about. Um, it's only associated with football hooligans and, and, and the far right. And at least in Ireland, we sort of kind of feel we, we know something about this thing. Um, not because we're in any way smarter or more superior, but actually almost the opposite. Like we, we've we've done it all. We've done all the bad stuff. We know what zero sum nationalism looks like. We know what it feels like, and we know how it plays out or how it can play out. Um, so I suppose for an Irish person looking at Brexit, you're sensitised to these questions around what's the bigger thing going on here. Um, Particularly if if you're going to try and write a book, because there's no point in writing a book about the process, you know, because who knows what the process is? We still don't. Even if you knew more about it by the time you had published the book, you'd probably be wrong. Something else would have happened. 
So I was very de- determined to write a book that 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 really was not going to date. You know, it's 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 not about uh, the referendum. It's not about the negotiations. It, it's just trying in some way to ask and maybe answer to somebody's satisfaction, at least my own, that question about how does a privileged, um, relatively stable, um, relatively prosperous Western European democracy um, get itself into the kind of state of chaos that we're seeing at the moment, where where it really is in a fundamental crisis as to who's in charge, uh, what is the nature of the state, what is its relationship to the rest of the world, all those sort of very big existential questions are being asked but not being answered um, and and so I think you know the book is quite short it's it's I suppose polemical but it's 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 just an attempt to do some kind of echo sounding through one part of the English reactionary mentality so Helen Finton describes being on the very near outside looking in what's it like being on the inside at the moment of at, the, at, at this historical moment well, I think that's a, a pretty hard question to answer because, as Finland's always said, there is, you know there is a sense of um, of crisis, and you've got to find some, in some sense, place to put yourself in relation to that crisis. Do you want to get caught up, you know, like in the middle of it, feel everything that's going on, have a reaction to everything that's going on, or do you want to try and keep some kind of distance from it and try to understand it, to analyse it? And my instinct is is to try to understand rather than to participate now that doesn't mean that I don't have lots of you know like thoughts and indeed feelings on the on the subject but I, I try to concentrate on observation and understanding rather than getting caught up in the you know at times pretty fraught emotion that's going on around to what extent if at all do you agree with the analysis which which, which Finton expresses and which is very popular in Ireland obviously in other places too but particularly popular I think in Ireland that what we see here is the outgrowth of a sort of atavistic English nationalism which has been stirred by the decline uh, of the British Empire, the loosening of the bonds that held the United Kingdom together and a general sense of decline and loss? Well, I agree very much with a caveat about the uh, thesis about the importance of English nationhood in this. The caveat, and I do think it has to be stated, is, is Wales. Yeah. Because you know, there doesn't really look like any difference in the way in which the Welsh voted than the way in which the, the English voted, including you know, the class composition of the Leave vote in, in both um, cases. So, and, and, I, and I do think Wales' story is in danger of getting lost in that. Nonetheless, I, what I do recognise is a story about how since some point in the 90s there has been a growing sense within significant parts of England that there is such a thing that might be described as an English political community. And uh, in the context of asymmetrical you know, devolution in regard to Scotland and Wales, in which England was left you know, either with no particular governance relations, governance arrangements, or patched up governance arrangements in, in recent years, once you sort of intersected that development with... I would say some long-standing historical difficulties of reconciling the more English parts of the British constitutional settlement with Britain's membership of the European Union. I don't think it's surprising that what we get is a, a manifestation, in some sense, in quite a chaotic way. With that, I agree with this notion of emerging notion of English um, political community. I think where I 
I part company is is more in sense of like England's history and class history in relation um, to this. So it seems to me that you can only understand the role that English history is playing in this moment that's led to Brexit through some um, understanding of the court country distinction in the way in which English politics developed, going back for a long, long time. So I would say into the years after the um, conquest. So I think that Englishness has always had a subversive element about it that has been used against the crown. Now, there were periods, and I would say that Henry V and Agincourt is one of them. I'd say that the um, Tudors, particularly, obviously, under Elizabeth I, is another of them, where, where the crown has kind of tried to use that notion of Englishness that usually is developed independently of it for its own purposes. But more often than not, I think Englishness in, in, um, in what later became British politics as well as English politics has been used to give, if you like, those with power in London a good kicking. That's very interesting because that's drawing a line from over almost almost a thousand years through, if I may say, everything from roundheads to punk rockers to a kind of a, a kind of a, a long lineage of of revolt and rebellion against, roughly speaking, a London-based elite that perhaps is more internationally focused and always has been. Well, I think that that is partly the story. I mean, I think that one of the reasons why Take Back Control actually worked as a message is, is I think that has deep historical resonances in this relationship between England outside London and those who are exercising power at, you know, in London. And part of that was the way in which in the early period, so in the years after the um, conquest, really until into the, um, you know, the 14th century, you're talking about a French-speaking elite uh, in London, the crown, and you have you know pretty periodic revolts against it, you know, which produce some significant moments in English history, including Magna Carta and the emergence of um, Parliament. And one of the things that the revolts tend to be against is the continental preoccupations of that crown. So I would see you know Brexit fitting in and its English aspects of it into a pretty you know long historical pattern. I don't think that's all that there's to be said about it. I don't think you could understand it also without understanding the consequences of Britain staying out of the monetary arrangements of the European Union. So I would think that the European Union itself is a much more significant part of this story. But I, I still think that the, the story about, if you like, the fault lines of the European Union do intersect with a pretty long stretch of English history. But Swinton, I mean, you write in, in the book as, as well about the construction of English identity and then after that of of a british identity ultimately then a british imperial identity yeah i mean it's 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 hard to think quite of any historical parallel to what happens to english identity you know which is that it's it's arguably the first coherent national identity um you know if you if you think about uh, england in the period that helen's gone back to you know i mean you go back to the, the 13th 14th century you know, it, it 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 by and large has a single language. Of course, the elites are still speaking French, but the, you know, most people are speaking English. It has a unified system of laws. It has a unified national territory. I mean, all these things that you know, if you think about Italy or Spain or Germany or France, these big countries that we think of, they they're nothing like that. So it's a very early national identity, and uh, it's a very very aggressive, powerful one. You know, it has a real sense of itself and of its own superiority. And then it gets wrapped up in these two other constructs. I mean, one is empire and one is Britishness. And of course, they're very closely interrelated. Um, and the deal 
is not an easy one. I mean, you know, I mean, Helen knows much more about this than I do, but, the, you know, the English resist this. They don't, they don't like it, you know. They have to be persuaded and, and in, in some ways corralled into it. But the deal is you get the empire and you get peace on your own island. So the Scots stop bloody well attacking you every time you go to war with the French or the Spanish. Uh, and therefore you can do empire. And you become the most prosperous country in the world. And you become the most prosperous country in the world. And you also have then, you know, we can actually use... British as a synonym for English, or rather, even the other way around, we can use English as a synonym for British, really. You know, and of course, the Scots have been complaining about this for for, for a very long time. The Welsh, um, it, it's astonishing. One of the things I was doing for the book, I mean, is you, you read back a lot of stuff from the sixties and seventies, you know, and it's just absolutely astonishing the completely unselfconscious way in which British intellectuals use English. Uh, as interchangeable. Completely interchangeable, or sometimes mm. not even interchangeable, just <laughs> they just don't even bother with the British thing. Mm. Uh, but they mean Britain. I mean, they mean, that, you know, they mean to include Scotland, certainly. So it, it's a deal that worked, but it's a deal that doesn't work anymore. So if, if, if it was wrapped up into empire and into Britishness, well, the empire is gone. And Britishness really starts to crack apart in the late 1990s. Two big, huge things happen. I mean, one is the Belfast Agreement in 1998, which says actually part of this union is a kind of provisional part of it. You know, it's, it's not like Finchley, you know, as, as Thatcher famously said, Northern Ireland is as British as, as my constituency. The Belfast Agreement makes it very clear that that's not. Uh, but then even bigger, I think much more impact on English consciousness is the, uh, the establishment of the Scottish Parliament in 1999, the following year. And as Helen was saying, this kind of very... Um, obvious disjunction between how come the other parts of the union get to express themselves in their own national terms that the English don't. And, and you have all these things like the West Lothian question that some people are getting yeah, layers yeah. of yeah, representation yeah. And of course that, that English people aren't. It, the, the problem is not that it exists. I mean, let's, let's, you know, let's not be superior about it. I mean, everybody has a nationalism, whether they like it or not. And, and there's, there's nothing at all wrong with the idea of an English national political community. You could see because of these historical developments, actually, that's a perfectly rational, logical way to, to respond to these changes. The problem is that it's, it's, it's very unusual again. There's nothing quite like this. It's very hard to think of a nationalism that's emerging as quickly and as powerfully, which has no political party, which has no newspapers, which has no real kind of hinterland in the arts, for example. Very little. I mean, oddly enough, when people like Billy Bragg or PJ Harvey, a lot of the rock musicians begin to, to, to explore it. But, you know, there's no English national theatre. <laughs> there's a British national theatre. There's no, um, you know, there's no set of English institutions. There's no English WB Yeats, for example, our, our nationalism, you know. You produce, you've great poets who are kind of giving it a whole kind of emotional content. And so you don't have this kind oh, of stuff. Oh, there's William Blake. Yeah, 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 but not in the 1990s. Okay, so, yeah. no, what I mean is that you have to go back, exactly. Mm. You have to go back to, 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 to that radical tradition. Now, it, it seems to me that that radical tradition was and perhaps still is capable of being tapped into. The very stuff that Helen is talking about, the sort of oppositional nature of Englishness, which is not necessarily xenophobic or fascistic, although, of course, it can express itself in those ways. But remember, it's also the tradition of the diggers. It's the tradition of John Ball. It's the tradition of, of, of Thomas Paine, for God's sake. You know, it's, it's a tradition of, 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 of egalitarianism, and it feeds itself into one of the greatest achievements of human civilization, which is the British welfare state. You know, the, the, the NHS is as wonderful uh, an expression of human civilization as, as the pyramids, probably much better, actually. Um, and, and so there's positive expressions of this sense of English egalitarianism, which is very, very powerful. And so one of the things that happens, of course, is that 
this is eroded, you know, and it's not eroded accidentally. It's eroded as part of a very specific political program. The neoliberal program is attacking the very things that people, you know, can locate their identity in. Identity may be abstract in some ways, but it's also very real. It's about where you live and who you live with and what you're entitled to and how you think of yourself as a citizen. And, you know, privatization is taking away the sense that you as a citizen belong somewhere and have a right to something. The erosion of, of the NHS is taking that away. The, you know, it's not accidental that the most powerful you know, a set of images for Brexit. Yes, there was all the immigration stuff, but the 350 million a week for the NHS, you know, is a really powerful thing because it's telling people, you know, the NHS is being eroded. There's all this money out there. Let's bring it back. Uh, it, it, it it makes a huge amount of sense to people. But it didn't have to be that way. You know, the, I, I think a lot of this is about the stuff that Helen's been talking about, you know, which is to do with a kind of betrayal, even by the left wing elites of 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 a lot of that constituency who are who are made to feel like they don't matter anymore, they're taken for granted. Yeah, if, uh, Helen, I want to ask you about that because I, re- I read read a piece by you, I'm not quite sure where I read it, but I definitely read it, well, it which was, was kind of making a version of this argument in terms of how the Labour Party had in the in, in the nineteen nineties for for example and the and the first the first decade of this century had lost its touch with its democratic base, its democratic roots because of decisions it had made. Because, in a way, I think you were saying, because it had lost contact with the Eurosceptic part of its being, which had, which had been very strong back in the 1970s at the time when, when Britain first joined. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, that Finton's right in the sense that there is something in the English tradition that becomes part of the British tradition, because I, I don't think you can really say that the National Health Service is an English institution, sure, sure. it is a British institution, is, is but something gets lost. And then part of what's been going on now is an expression of something that has been lost. And I think that there are, you know, there are a number of reasons why that has become the case. But one of them is to do with the role that the Labour Party has played in all this, because the Labour Party was, you know, a pretty broad political coalition that could, you know, include within it, if you like, and I'm saying English now deliberately, the English radical tradition, this attachment to the idea of parliament as being the means by which political change in a relatively radical sense came about and which acted in some senses as the guardian of the people's liberties or citizens' um, liberties. And it isn't just that Labour moved in a different direction where the European Union was concerned under Blair, but it pretty much annihilated, in doing so, Euroscepticism within the Labour Party. You haven't really got anyone after Brian Gold who is picking up on those old-style arguments, the kind of arguments that you know that Michael Fulton was making, say, in the and Peter Shaw, for that matter, in the 1970s about the the European um, Union. And this is happening at the same time as the working class. Labour base is feeling alienated from the Labour Party in a number of other ways. I would say also there's much less literal participation of people from working class origins in the upper echelons of the Labour Party under the new Labour project than there was um, previously. I mean, David Blunkett stands out as someone who's a kind of rare exception um, to that. And so, in some sense, the Labour Party's rhetoric became hollowed out of an important part of what had been the English, became part of the British um, political um, tradition and in some sense a significant swathe of its its voters simply felt that it had nothing to say to it about this European question. Now I would say then that a number of 
practical questions generated by the European Union itself and the British government's response to it, including freedom of movement and the decision by that Labour government not to have any transition arrangements in 2004 on Eastern European uh, accession intersected with this. So it's not simply a story of what's going on in Britain or what's going on in England. It does require this interactive relationship with actually what's happening in the European Union um, itself, but you certainly can't understand it without this long history, I think. Yes, Fintan, and, and further to that, there's the fact that going back but even before the 1990s, but certainly in the 1990s onwards, um, Britain represents the Eurosceptic position within the European Union in that of the large members, it is the one which is uh, most dubious about moves to faster integration towards a federal superstate or wherever you want to, want to characterise it. And that, you know, that, you know, reaches a very high high point or low point, depending on your point of view, when Britain drops out of the ERM and ultimately decides not to join the euro. Now, you could either see that as a harbinger of what we have here right now, or is Britain actually expressing what is a strong political strand throughout the EU of, of many, well, yeah. many citizens who are very dubious about those projects. Yeah, you know, the, to me, the extraordinary thing is that um, British governments never claimed their victories. You know, it, it, and if you look at it objectively, um, Britain was easily the most skillful player within the European power dynamic. Right? They got three big things. They got the rebate. They got staying out of the euro. And of course, they got staying out of Schengen. You know, now you can argue about whether any of those things was right or wrong. That's not the question. But the, if they set those as policy goals, I mean, they got them. You know, and it's really extraordinary when you look back on it. You know, as to why they're not out saying, you know, patriotically, you know, look how brilliant we are in Europe. Look how well we can play this game. Look how much we created the single market. I mean, the, the, one of the ironies of the current dilemma really is that the, the single market, more than any other country. Is a, is a British creation, you know. And yet, there's no claiming of it, just as there's no claiming of key moments in modern European history. So there's no, in, I mean, one of the strongest things is there's no British claiming of German reunification. You, you know, if, if you think about those images that, that were so powerful of, of, of uh, Cole and Mitterrand, you know, holding hands, and then you think, why is there not an image of Margaret Thatcher on the Berlin Wall with Cole? saying it's now over finally, you know, this this horrible thing that happens to us, these two world wars, this whole thing. Because and I think the historical the record shows that she wasn't very happy about it at all. No, it, it? It, instead it was paranoid. And, I mean, instead the response was completely paranoid. And one of the things I write about in the book is a very, it's fascinating to look at. One of the books that comes out of this that's incredibly influential and powerful is, is Robert Harris's thriller Fatherland, which... The original cover, I mean, has has um, you know a, a, a tower a building, the tower, and the European Union flag and the swastika. You know, uh, this idea that actually the Germans really won the war. You know, that that it's a sort of dark imagining that we won the war, but but the Germans have sort of very cleverly and particularly now unified Germany. You know, they're they're dominating Europe. It's it, the EU is really a front. And this might sound very abstract, but think about what happens in Brexit. The most powerful argument uh, in terms of the process in Brexit, I mean, I, I think all the things we've been talking about are very powerful underneath the surface, but in terms of the basic process, the, the economic argument, right, is this is going to be really easy. Why is it going to be really easy? Because the negotiations will not be done in Brussels, they'll be done in Berlin. Why? Because, of course, we all know the, the EU is really a German front. So... As David Davis very explicitly said, you know, the, the, we'll be on the plane, we'll be over to Berlin, 
the German car manufacturers want to sell their, their Mercs to us, they will instruct the German government to uh, give us cake and, and, and let us eat it. And the Germans, in turn, will instruct the European Union to agree to whatever we want. It'll all be over in a couple of hours. That's that's what... That, now, you can say this is delusional. You can say that they didn't believe it. I, I think they kind of did believe it because it's structured around this idea of a sort of self-pitying idea of, of, of our relationship to the European Union, which objectively is bizarre. What the, 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 There was a positive narrative of British power within the European Union. A Eurosceptic narrative, certainly, but in terms of uh, we're brilliant in there stopping them from running off with their mad continental schemes. We're, we're the ones who put the brake on it and look how good we are at doing it. Uh, uh, but also, you know, our history has kind of led to the European peace. It's led now to German reunification. It's led to winning the Cold War. It's finally all this period of history is over and we are the winners. There's none of that narrative. Whereas in 1973, sorry, 1975, when they had the first referendum, people keep talking, by the way, but you can't have a second referendum. I mean, remember, 2016 was a second referendum. The first referendum was won two to one by Harold Wilson. And it's very interesting to look back on that because the rhetoric of the Yes campaign there was very positive. It was actually claiming Europe as a British victory. It was saying, we fought two world wars to create this. Uh, you know, we don't want anybody to die. I mean, instead of running away from the historical thing, it was actually running right towards it. The, that, that referendum, I think, was not too long after Armistice Day. And they actually went for it. They actually went for saying, you know, no more dead, no, no more of this sort of stuff. We have to create something new. So it's the absence as well of any kind of positive narrative of, you can call it Britishness or Englishness or whatever, within that European context that I think allows then this sort of dark imagining to take hold and, and to become so influential. Helen, what do you think of that, of that narrative? And how does that fit with your court versus country with court you know being looking more towards towards Europe this this looming kind of cartoon figure of Germany that seems so so powerful in British popular culture over the last 30 or 40 years I mean there's no doubt that the the German question you know like resonates pretty deeply in 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 British politics but I'll come back to the where I think that the German question manifested itself in the referendum um, itself but I mean, I think I take a different view than um, Finton about the years of Britain's membership of the European Union and how influential Britain was in that. Certainly, it was influential at exercising its effective veto about agreeing to things that it didn't want to agree to. So it secured opt-outs. Uh, it secured opt-outs about Schengen. It secured opt-out, most importantly, from Britain's point of view, about participating in the in in the euro. But these are defensive victories. They're not positive victories. They are saying that Britain does not have to sign up to things that it doesn't um, want to. And I would say that one of the reasons why that the single market doesn't become this triumphant narrative is, is because, you know, it doesn't take too long for people to realise that there isn't going to be a single market where services are concerned. That, it, you know, it's much, or it's, it's very limited in this respect. And that given that Britain has a, you know, a strongly service economy, leaving the financial services side out of it, of which the city obviously does do well out of the European Union. But the rest of it is much more difficult to present as something, OK, this is what Britain wanted, this is what Britain got. Because actually it does make more sense to think that German influence over service rules has been more important than British influence over service rules within, within, the, um, within the single market. And I think what happens is, is, is that once we get to the Eurozone crisis, that the way in which... Britain has accommodated itself to the European Union, which is to be successful at playing defensive politics around procuring opt-outs, and it, you know, uh, and that goes on into 
each of the treaties that are negotiated um, after um, Maastricht really grinds to a halt with the Eurozone crisis because then the idea that Britain can protect its position by negotiating opt-outs from further treaties is basically bankrupted by the fact there isn't going to be further treaties. I mean, you know, Cameron tries that gambit in December 2011 when he wants an opt-out over future financial services regulations. And there isn't going to be a treaty. The other states say, OK, we'll agree an intergovernmental treaty outside the framework of the European legal and constitutional order, so your veto doesn't matter. And I think that is an important you know, path, point on the path, so to speak, to Cameron making his referendum promise. So the whole strategy, I think, is bankrupted once... Britain is in a position, or the Cameron government, the coalition government, finds itself in a position where the old tactics for playing successfully defensive politics within the European Union don't work any longer. But would that, might, think, would that, might that well, not have ended up in a, in a situation which might have suited Britain and indeed possibly Ireland as well, whereas the, the sometimes, you know, the, the, the mooted two-speed two, two Europe would actually come into effect and that that might well suit, you know, a, a country which wanted to be in a less high-speed Europe. Or, or is that what you're talking about, that you would still be, it would be the lower speed, it would only well, be think, negative and defensive and saying no as opposed to taking a proactive approach? I, I don't think it needed to have been that. I think a kind of interesting counterfactual here is is what happened at the Maastricht Treaty because because I think that there's a there's a tension. I mean, I'll actually call it a fault line for the European Union itself that emerges with the with the Maastricht Treaty. Is once you accept the idea, and to begin with, it was going to only apply to Britain, but obviously it then expands to other states. That you're going to have states inside the euro and states outside the euro, but you're going to have a legal, a single legal and constitutional order. Um, you're going to carry on having a single legal and constitutional order. You've got attention, and that's why you end up, you know, like in December 2011, having to agree treaties that are going to exist outside the EU um, treaty framework. If there'd been a, a way of actually creating a, a structured, legally and constitutionally structured two-tier European Union in the 90s that distinguished between Euro and non-Euro members, I think you can see a reasonably clear path how Britain would have stayed, ended up staying in that European um, Union. And I don't think it would have just been pushed back into what it seemed to be from its from the Leaf and the Coalition government's point of view, um, defensive um, politics. But that's not what happened. It faced a series of problems then about financial services regulation, about Cameron wanting concessions on um, freedom of movement. And it was trying to do it, or Cameron was trying to do that once he got a majority at just the moment when the, the Germans really run the EU thesis had got some visible demonstration in terms of Germany's management of the Eurozone crisis in relation to Greece, in terms of Merkel's handling of the refugee and migrant crisis in the summer of 2015, you might say as well in terms of the way that the negotiations took place. Now, I would say, I would argue that actually that German influence within the European Union actually nosedived quite quickly after the, actually after the Brexit referendum. In, in that sense, that is a paradox that, that you know, the, the referendum in itself actually made Germany weaker for various reasons. And now Britain has found that it has not been able to negotiate in the way in which the Brexiteers assumed in which Merkel's influence would prevail. Fintan? Yes, I, I, I wouldn't disagree with any of that. I, I think that what we have to say is that, you know, at the high level of, um, you know, service regulation, I, I think that's of concern, a, a, a deep concern, but, you know, but within very high levels of, of economic and political discourse. The things you have to remember is that the absences are much more glaring and much more obvious and, and much more puzzling which is why is there no narrative about the European Union as providing some kind of floor for workers' rights, which it does, 
Um, you know, is it perfect? Absolutely not. But compared to the sort of deregulation that most of the Brexiteers want to bring in, it's it's some kind of security. Why was there no narrative about climate change? And about the fact that you cannot manage climate change at a national level, that you and that the European Union, again, not not perfectly, but it has been a major player in 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 um, the, the the climate change treaties and and has been relatively responsible on the world stage in relation to that. Why is there no narrative about the environment? Why is there no narrative that says, look, you know, there are a whole range of areas, like for example, taxation of multinational corporations, which is a popular issue, which is a justice issue, which really kind of is very comprehensible to most people. Um, you know, if you, if you don't have a narrative that says, look, the only set of institutions which are capable of dealing with these questions are, are multilateral institutions, and that we therefore share sovereignty to do this, you know, like be absolutely upfront with people. But it's, it's, it's as if the narrative was all about we're not really sharing sovereignty on the one side or we have been invaded and taken over by the Germans Well, well the I might side. ask you about the media just, yeah. just, just in a sec, but just, I'm going to answer your question for a sec, sec, because we live in probably in one of the countries in Europe which is most in favour of the European Union and most polls show that we're, de- we're extremely enthusiastic about it. But even here, I know, if you turn around to somebody and start to engage with them about your enthusiasm about the European Union as an institution, they're eyes will glaze over within within seconds and you know it is not it is not a body whatever its merits and demerits that inspires the kind of love uh, love of country, perhaps you know that 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 more traditional nationalism gets I mean, you. And it's, it's, it's immensely boring. I mean, it's immensely it's boring. boring. You know, and and that, in a way, is is what makes it you know for all its enormous faults, but it's what makes it a very civilized set of institutions. You know that it's the first attempt we've really had to construct a polity without all the emotional epic stuff about you know our blood and soil and all that all that nonsense. Um, remember, one of the failures of the European Union was exactly when it tried to do this kind of European constitution and, you know, let's have a European, mm. the European flag, well, the European flag. But, you know, it tried to sort of make it as if it was a country. And everybody said, no, <laughs> I mean, that's not what it is. And that was, that was completely misconceived and misguided because actually it's, 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 it's real power in a sense is that it's, it's about the only kind of polity in which we can sort of function without a lot of that stuff. But the downside of that is, of course, that you don't have the emotional attachment unless you're outside of it. You see, the, one of the gr- huge paradoxes of Brexit, if you, if you cast your mind back to, to June 2016, the narrative was this is the beginning of the end of the European Union. It's going to be Italy next. The Dutch are going to go. Maybe the Danes are going to go. You know, it was uh, it was a, a, a broad narrative. France, of course, you know, even with, with Le Pen rising in the polls, you know, France might be out of the European Union. And then it's over. If France gone, it's over. Um, What's happened was that the Eurobarometer poll last week is very interesting, where you see actually a huge move back in all of those countries towards people being asked, would you leave the European Union saying no? That doesn't mean they're attached to it emotionally or they love it or they're you know, erotically excited by it. It just means that looking at Brexit, people are saying, well, oh, yeah, shit, if you were outside it or if you were trying to get outside, like, th- th- is it worth it? Is, it? is it actually worth doing all of that self-harm to get where? Well, exactly. then let's come to the, the, the to, to the get where. Theresa May Helen, is wander, will be wandering around the UK for the next uh, for the next two weeks or so. She was in the House of Commons yesterday, and will be back there again many times before the before this vote. Um, and essentially, as I read it, what she's saying is the most important thing is we are stopping freedom of movement. Uh, pretty much everything else is going to be as it is for the foreseeable future, and perhaps even even longer than that. But look, freedom of movement is over. Is that the most important thing? 
I think that it's the most important thing from what she thinks that she's achieved. Um, and, and I think that this goes back to the, you know, the circumstances of Cameron's, you know, renegotiation. When he made that first promise about a referendum in the event of a conservative majority government, the Bloomberg speech in January 2013, there's no mention of immigration or freedom of movement in his, uh, in his speech. It's concentrated on issues to do with financial services regulation, the position of the city, safeguards against what happens uh, in the euro. He finds as he moves towards the end of that parliament and the 2015 general election, in good part because of the rise of UKIP, but I don't think only because of that, that freedom of movement becomes a much more politicised question. And obviously there is a narrative that is pushed by some on the Leave side, but actually has also been pretty strongly pushed by many on the Remain side to interpret the referendum as a repudiation of freedom of um, movement. And so I think that she has prioritised that in the negotiation. She's clearly prioritised it over issues that are of more direct concern, I think, to some of the politicians who are in the Brexit camp, particularly in the, on the right wing of the Conservative Party, around an independent um, trade policy. And I think that she thinks that that is the way in which she can bring over um, MPs who at the moment don't really want to um, support her but might just be persuaded into it because they do fear that enough of their voters are not comfortable with continuing high levels as they see it of immigration. And I think if you look at you know, like the history of British elections since I'd go back to 2010, then immigration has mattered. I mean, Cameron wouldn't have been in some of the difficulties he got into if in 2010 he hadn't promised to reduce immigration to tens of thousands when actually within the European Union that was simply not um, possible. In some sense, Cameron was caught out on himself making a promise that couldn't be delivered within the European Union. He hoped in some sense he'd, he'd get away with it because he thinks, OK, politicians don't tell the truth in elections. But what he found was actually the electorate ended up or enough of the electorate ended up saying, well, actually, let's create the conditions in which we can do what we, you promised us that you were going to do in the first place. There's things in life you just can't control, like the weather, the traffic, or the fact that spilled coffee seems to love white shirts. But it's all good, because there's something you'll always be able to control, your company's finances. SAP Concur integrates all your business's expenses, travel and invoicing in one simple solution, giving you the visibility and control you need to drive your business forward. SAP Concur. It's how the best-run businesses make their expenses run better. Learn more at concur.co.uk slash control. Let's get to lying politicians and charlatans and buffoons of various sorts. Because, Fintan, I mean, the title of your book is Heroic Failure. And there, there, is, a, there is a thesis therein uh, which people can, uh, can figure out if they, if they buy the book. But it's really, it does sort of draw a line on a certain type of British culture, which is rooted in imperial conquest, the, the, the culture of public schools, but also other forms of popular culture and the mass media, the way in which the British newspapers work. It's, I, I was showing you just before we started um, uh, recording this podcast, a remarkable video clip on Twitter of a documentary, a BBC documentary about uh, Boris Johnson's time at the Foreign Office. Hi folks, Boris Johnson, Foreign Secretary. I'm here in Lisbon, in Portugal, to celebrate what is the oldest alliance and friendship in diplomatic history going back to 1386, going forward through the Napoleonic Wars, through to the Second World War, where, of course, this was a, a place that uh, was... Uh, I'm trying to think what, what happened in the Second World War. <laughs> what did we do in the Second World War? It was, it was neutral, wasn't it? The Azores. What did we do in the Azores? 
really you could not make it up. It makes the thick of it look like uh, sober documentary making. The the kind of the sheer idiocy and yeah. pride in that idiocy, which which is on display yeah. there. Yeah. What is going on there? That whole British culture, and I don't want to, I don't want to be too cliched about it, but that whole British culture of keep calm and carry on, stiff upper lip, uh, take nothing seriously, even if your leg has been chopped off in some kind of Monty Python kind yeah. of style. How does that feed into the way this whole? Well, bloody thing works. You see, one of the things we, we have to throw into this. So, uh, you know, I think Alan's been talking very uh, eloquently and brilliantly about the, the 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 country side of this, but the court side of it. You know, the the existence of a post-imperial ruling class, which which becomes completely anarchistic and completely irresponsible, um, and really is then into a sort of postmodern game playing. You know, where 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 nothing is serious, where it's all performance. I mean, I, I still believe sometimes in my heart of hearts that very, very soon Jacob Rees-Mogg is going to sort of rip off the mask and it will be like a, a, a 40-year-old black feminist uh, <laughs> performance artist, you know, <laughs> uh, 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 and it'll be just about the most brilliant. Oh, wow, wasn't that brilliant? Um, uh, but the, I mean, the, the, that Johnson, I, I know Johnson's in a way a soft target, but he's really interesting because at every, t- every moment the Johnson thing has been camp. It's, it's completely double. You know, it's it's sort of I'm playing this up. You know, I'm playing it up. I'm lying. You kind of know I'm lying. But nevertheless, this is deeply serious. and It's about sovereignty. You know, I write a lot of the book about the the, the uh, prawn cocktail flavored crisps, you know, uh, 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 kind of seriously in a way. But it's in this kind of weird mixture of farce and, and tragedy where, you know, the, 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 the ruling class Brexit narrative has to be a narrative about oppression. So it has to be about how we are being oppressed. Not how we as a ruling class are oppressing anybody or have oppressed anybody, but how we are being oppressed. So a lot of this, remember, is also tied in with the sort of late 20th, early 21st century culture that we're still living in of victimhood, you know, competitive victimhood. So the way you get power is no longer by saying we are in charge of everything. It's by saying we are victims. We're all victims. Like, you know, Trump, of course, plays this and Orban plays it. Everybody's playing it. Putin plays it. So in, in, in one form, Brexit is a part of this, but it, it, it has a problem, right, which, which is that, that it's, it's, it, they're not being oppressed. I mean, the, the British upper class are not being oppressed. So you have to invent an oppressor. And, and, and so Johnson is a very key figure in this. So what, what he picks on is a very old English tradition of foreigners interfering with our food, you know, which, which goes back certainly to the 18th century, so that I, to my knowledge, but Helen probably knows about this going further back. But, you know, the roast beef of old England. We are, we eat what we like, we do what we like, and we're not having bloody foreigners telling us what, what to consume. And Johnson really kind of picks up on that really brilliantly as Brussels correspondent of the Telegraph. And he's sent there as a liar. He's been fired from the Times for lying. I mean, just making stuff up. He gets immediately sent to Brussels, where you can make stuff up without consequence. So the idea is, throw it at them. It doesn't matter. It's the European Union. We can we can play this game. And so you have 25 years of absolutely astonishing competitive mendacity in the British press, which is, you know, both very effective in the long term because it's drip, drip, drip stuff. But it's also, you know, it's, it's, it's Monty Python sketch stuff. It's, it's, you know, I was writing about this on Saturday. I mean, what, one of the, one of my favorite ones is, is the story. So what you do, what, Bons, what Boris discovers is this kind of camping up, right? So you, you take a tiny regulation 
And then you inflate it into an assault on English identity and English sovereignty. So they're banning prawn cocktail flavored crisps. These bastards, these Nazi bastards are stopping us feeding our children prawn cocktail flavored crisps. Now, you can actually go into the shops and still buy prawn cocktail flavored crisps. It's, it's a total lie, but it doesn't matter. Um, the wonderful ones about how they're making um, our fishermen wear hairnets. Yeah. Right? So there's a regulation about if you're processing food, you have to wear hairnets. So our fishermen are being made wear hairnets. Children aren't allowed to blow up balloons children anymore. Children are allowed to blow up balloons. We win all this, right? But what's it about? And what, what's it about? What's it, what, what it's about is about the invention of oppression, that, that you, you, you have to actually find ways in which you're being oppressed. So for the ruling class to say, we don't like the way the European Union is regulating our financial services. I mean, who gives a damn? You know, like, mm. uh, of course it's important, but, but as a popular issue on which you're going to stage a national revolution, that's not the stuff of it. The stuff of it is what you consume. And so it feeds into this sort of anti-nanny state stuff. It feeds into the sense that it displaces all of that stuff onto the European Union and says, you know, it's them. They are the people who are interfering with you. They're molesting you in a way. And they're molesting you in terms of your gut. <laughs> and this is intolerable. Helen, how do people, why do people buy that stuff? I don't know, Ziad. I mean, the thing is, is I, I think this is a really complicated question. And I agree that there's something very strange about um, Boris Johnson's role in, in all this. And, you know, who he is as a person, the language he uses, this sort of this attempt and this pretty pathetic attempt to present himself as the Churchill that's required for the, um, the situation. I think, though, that what is really in some sense significant is is that stuff that has, comes out more after, and I think that Jacob Rees-Mogg really captures in some of the language that he uses, is not the stuff that wins the election for the Leave campaign. I think the most striking thing about the Leave campaign is, is that all that stuff that Fintan's describing is kind of not knocked out of them, but they are asked to, ex they are asked to accept the discipline that um, Dominic Cummings imposes upon them. I think this comes out quite well in um, Tim Shipman's book about this you know he's the one who says look you're not going to go out there and talk about global britain and all this you know pretension about british power etc you're going to go out there and talk about the national health service you know you're going to get these conservative mps who's the last thing they usually want to talk about in elections is a national health service because it's usually a you know an issue that's a liability for the conservatives and you're actually going to have to um, talk about it now i think this has caused all kinds of problems for brexit since the referendum campaign because you've got a campaign that was won in one one way, and you've got the people who led it at the elite level wanting to take it in a yeah. different direction. Yeah. And I think you can see some of this now. Is, is, and that is why Theresa May, I think, in terms of speaking to a section of the elite electorate anyway, can be quite effective in making the argument that she's saying. Because she's, she's saying, like, concentrate on the things that you are trying to communicate to us about what you didn't like. And she's saying, in some sense, that all those things that concern the people like Johnson and, you know, like Rees Mogg, this obsession with trade deals with the United States, etc., that's not what this is about. So I, I think that she's got in a position where she's, she's, in some sense, trying to now articulate, if you like to use my earlier language, a country position against the core, but she's pushing on to, you know, Johnson and, 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 and Rees Mogg. And Kai. A final thought, if you, if you wouldn't mind. Here we are now. We're in this political yeah. moment. It's the equivalent of the final scene of the Italian job. We're teetering on the cliff. Yeah. Uh, you can either go for the money and go plunging to your death or something else might yeah. happen. What's going to happen? Well, <laughs> you know, um, 
The, like, the, see, there are three fundamental contradictions that they cannot deal with. One is the one that Hal was talking about. So there's a complete contradiction between the leadership, which is this ultra-globalist agenda of, of deregulation, you know, opening Britain up as the Singapore of the West, all that kind of stuff, which is not what the people, most of the people who are, who are, who are, who are voting are at all interested in because it involves stripping away their rights. That's a fundamental contradiction. There's a fundamental contradiction about Englishness. So as we've seen, Englishness and, and English community, English national identities feeding into it. What's the response to it? The DUP, the precious, precious union. So double down on the union. They can't solve that. And the fundamental thing they can't solve is that if you have imaginary oppression, you know, if you've built your sense of oppression on all this nonsense, you can't do what a revolution does, which is right the wrongs. You can't bring prawn cocktail flavoured crisps back into the shops because they're already there. You can't unban donkey rides on beaches because they were never banned. You know, all that sort of stuff. It can't have a programme that actually grasps political power. And so what's happened is that the, the Brexiteers, the hard Brexiteers, have essentially deflated because their whole inflation was about inflating this sense of, 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 of self-pity. And they're being exposed. I mean, they don't have a program that can't do anything, that can't take power, that can't hold power. So you're left with May and you're left with a very, very poor deal for Britain, you know, which is second class European Union membership. It, it, it seems to me that we've reached the sort of stalemate that was always going to, to happen, which is that there is, there is no possibility of no deal and there's no, no possibility of a deal. <laughs> and you're in a sort of perfect, perfect balance where the only way out is to go back to the people and say, this is what it looks like. Is this what you Want. I feel in this context, we have to leave the last word to the English person. Helen, what do you think? I mean, I keep, I keep asking you what I think is going to happen. And to be honest, I've got no idea what's going to happen. I mean, what I would say is, is I don't think the Brexit has to succeed in programme terms, perhaps in the way in which Finton does. I mean, I do think that there, that there is a way in which Britain is separating itself from the legal and constitutional order that is the European Union. It will make some compromises with it, not least, obviously, to deal with the um, Irish question. But if it gets to a place um, where it can, um, in some sense, create, and it does need to create, some new or re new governance relations for itself outside that old legal and constitutional order in which it was part and do something about repairing the union, which has obviously been hurt not only by you know, events since Brexit, but going back for much longer as we were, as we were um, discussing um, earlier, that is something that Brexit will have realised or could realise. I won't go any, any, any further than um, that. I mean, I think you can say that it's impossible to see how the deal goes through Parliament. You can say it's impossible to see how no deal comes about. But I think it's also possible to say it's impossible to see how a second referendum comes about. Because I think we're not just talking about what happened in, a, in the referendum on the 23rd of June 2016. We're talking about what happened in the general election in, in 2017. We're talking about a parliament that itself voted by a majority of six to one to hold that referendum in the first place. A parliament that voted to trigger Article 50. Is that parliament now going to turn around and say that actually we're going to hold a referendum again when it's pretty clear that the majority of the political class in parliament who will be pushing that will be doing that because they want to... Um, stop to prevent the outcome of the referendum taking place. That is enormous political risk. So, I mean, I don't see any good scenario or anything even that isn't a very bad scenario, but I don't think people should underestimate 
the political risk of, of having a second referendum in these circumstances. You go back to Sherlock Holmes, eliminate the impossible. <laughs> Whatever else remains, however improbable, must be the solution. So we end this podcast with an Irishman quoting, uh, <laughs> quoting English author and, and the English contributor, I think, for the first time in history, being the first person to bring up the Irish question on this podcast. Helen Thompson, Fintan O'Toole, thanks very much indeed for joining us. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks very much to our producer, Declan Conlon. And remember that you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. You can also get us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. You can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com. I'm always very interested to hear your views. Or you can usually find me on Twitter. But until the next time, thanks very much for listening.